Section three of Beacon Lights of History, Volume Ten European Leaders by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Sir Robert Peel, Part One. Seventeen eighty eight to eighteen fifty. Political Economy. Among the great prime ministers of England, Sir Robert Peel is to be classed. He ranks with Pitt, Canning, and Gladstone for his intellectual force, his services, and his patriotism. He was to England what Guizot and Thiers were to France, a preeminent statesman, identified with great movements, learned, eloquent, and wise. He was a man of unsullied character, commanding the respect and veneration of superior minds. Reserved and cold, perhaps, not a popular idol like Fox and O'Connell, but a leader of men. There was no man in his cabinet more gifted or influential than he. Lord Liverpool, Lord Melbourne, and Lord Aberdeen were placed in their exalted posts, not for remarkable abilities, but by the force of circumstances, for the purpose of uniting greater men than they in a coalition in order to form a strong government. Thus Canning really was the master spirit in the cabinet of Lord Liverpool, as Lord Palmerston was in that of Lord Aberdeen. Peel, however, was himself the controlling intellect of the government of which he was the head, and was doubtless superior in attainments and political genius to Wellington, to Earl Grey, and Lord John Russell, premiers like him, and prominent as statesmen. Lord Goodrich, Lord Stanley, Lord Althorpe, Sir James Graham, Mr. Goulburn, Lord Warncliffe, Lord Howick, Earl Ripon, Mr. Seawood, Mr. Macaulay, Mr. Croker, were all very able ministers, but not to be compared with Sir Robert Peel in shaping the destinies of the country. His administration was an epoch in English political history, to be long remembered as singularly successful and important. Sir Robert Peel came from the people, although his father was a baronet and a very wealthy man, proud and aristocratic as he was rich. His riches were acquired by manufacturing cotton goods, like those of his father before him, whose business he inherited. But the great-grandfather of Sir Robert was a plain and unimportant cotton spinner in Lancashire, of no social rank whatever. No noble blood flowed in the veins of the great premier, nor was he ever ambitious of aristocratic distinction. He declined an earldom, though rich enough to maintain its rank. He accepted no higher social rank than what he inherited, and which came from successful business. But Peel was educated with great care by an ambitious father. He was sent to Harrow and Christchurch, and was distinguished as a boy for his classical attainments, as was Canning before him. At an early age he reached all the honors that Oxford could bestow, and when he was only twenty-one was brought into Parliament for the close borough of Cashel, in Ireland, in the gift of some noble lord. He entered the House of Commons in 1809, at the same time with Palmerston, and a few years earlier than Lord John Russell, during that memorable period when Napoleon was in the midst of his victories, and when a noble constellation of English statesmen combined their energies for the good of their country. Wilberforce, Wyndham, Tierney, Percival, Grattan, Castlereagh, Canning, Romilly, Brougham, Mackintosh, Hushkisson, and others, all trained in the school of Pitt, Fox, or Burke, who had passed away. Among these great men, Peel made his way, not so much by force of original genius, blazing and kindling like the eloquence of Canning and Brougham, as by assiduity in business, untiring industry, and in speech, lucidity of statement, close reasoning, and perfect mastery of his subject in all its details. He was preeminently a man of facts rather than theories. Like Canning and Gladstone, he was ultra-conservative in his early political life, 
probably in a great measure from his father's example as well as from the force of his university surroundings, and of course joined the Tory party, then all-powerful. So precocious were his attainments, and so promising was he from the force of his character, that at the age of twenty-four he was made, by Mr. Percival, under-secretary for the colonies. The year after, in 1812, he was promoted, by Lord Liverpool, to the more important post of secretary for Ireland. In the latter post he had to combat Canning himself in the matter of Catholic emancipation, but did his best to promote secular education in that priest-ridden and unhappy country. For his high church views and advocacy of Tory principles, which he had been taught at Oxford, he was a favorite with the university, and in 1817 he had the distinguished honor of representing it in Parliament. In 1819 he made his financial reputation by advocating a return to specie payments, suspended in consequence of the Napoleonic Wars. In 1820 he was married to a daughter of General Sir John Floyd, and his beautiful domestic life was enhanced by his love of art, of science, of agriculture, and the society of eminent men. In 1822 he entered Lord Liverpool's cabinet as Home Secretary, and when the ministry was broken up in 1827, he refused to serve in the new government under Canning, on account of the liberal views which the Premier entertained in reference to Catholic emancipation. The necessity of this just measure Sir Robert Peel was made to feel after Canning's death during the administration of the Duke of Wellington. Conservative as he was, and opposed to all agitations for religious or political change, even under the name of reform, the fiery eloquence of O'Connell and the menacing power of the Catholic Association forced upon him the conviction of the necessity of Catholic emancipation, as the cold reasoning of Richard Cobden afterward turned him from a protectionist to a free trader. He was essentially an honest man, always open to reason and truth, learning wisdom from experience, and growing more liberal as he advanced in years. He brought the Duke of Wellington to his views in spite of that minister's inveterate prejudices, and the Catholics of Ireland were emancipated as an act of expediency and state necessity. Peel, although only Home Secretary under Wellington, was the prominent member of the administration, and was practically the leader of the House of Commons, in which character he himself introduced the bill for Catholic relief. This great service was, however, regarded by the ultra-Tories as an act of apostasy, and Peel incurred so much reproach from his former friends that he resigned his seat as member for Oxford University, and accepted the constituency of Westbury. During this administration, too, Sir Robert, as Home Secretary, reorganized the police force of London, whence their popular nicknames of Peelers and Bobbies, and performed other important services. In 1830 the Whigs came into power under Lord Ray, and for ten years, with the brief interval of his first administration, Sir Robert Peel was the most able leader of the opposition. In 1833 he accepted the parliamentary membership for Tamworth, which he retained to the end of his great career. He persistently opposed the Reform Bill in all its stages, but when it was finally passed he accepted it as unmistakably the will of the nation, and even advocated many of the reforms which grew out of it. In 1841 he again became Prime Minister, in an alarming financial crisis, and it was his ability in extricating the nation from financial difficulties that won for him general admiration. Thus for thirty years he served in Parliament before he reached the summit of political ambition, half of which period he was a member of the ministry, learning experience from successive administrations, and forging weapons by which he controlled the Conservative Party, until his conversion to the doctrines of Cobden again exposed him to the bitter wrath of the protectionists, but not until he had triumphantly carried the repeal of the Corn Laws, 
the most important and beneficent act of legislation since the passage of the reform bill itself it was this great public service on which the fame of sir robert peel chiefly rests but before we can present it according to its historical importance we must briefly glance at the financial measures by which he extricated his country from great embarrassments and won public confidence and esteem he did for england what alexander hamilton did for the united states in matters of finance although as inferior to hamilton in original genius as he was superior to him in general knowledge and purity of moral character no one man can be everything even if the object of unbounded admiration to every great man on a peculiar mission is given to one as lawgiver to another as conqueror to a third as teacher to a fourth as organizer and administrator and these missions in their immense variety constitute the life and soul of history sir robert peel's mission was that of a financier and political economist which next to that of warrior brings the greatest influence and fame in a commercial and manufacturing country like england not for lofty sentiments such as burke uttered on the eve of the french revolution are the highest rewards given in a material country like that of our ancestors but for the skill a man shows in expounding the way in which a nation may become prosperous and rich it was sir robert peel's mission to make england commercially prosperous even as it was that of brougham and russell to give it liberty and political privileges that of pitt and castlereagh to save it from foreign conquest and that of wilberforce to rescue it from the disgrace and infamy of negro slavery sir robert peel came into power in eighteen forty one the russell whig ministry having failed to satisfy the country in regard to financial questions there had been an annual deficit and the distress of both the agricultural and manufacturing classes was alarming the new premier proceeded with caution in the adoption of measures to relieve the burdens of the people and straighten out the finances which were in great disorder his first measure had reference to the corn laws for the price of food in england was greater than in other european countries he finally proposed to the assembled parliament in eighteen forty two to make an essential alteration in the duties and instead of a fixed duty he introduced a sliding scale by which the duty on corn should be thirteen shillings a quarter when the price was under sixty shillings increasing the duty in proportion as the price should fall and decreasing it as the price should rise so that when the price of corn was under fifty shillings the duty should be fixed at twenty shillings and when the price was above seventy-three the duty should be only a shilling a quarter this plan after animated discussion was approved for although protection still was continued the tendency of the measure was towards free trade for which the reformers were clamoring notwithstanding this measure which was triumphantly carried through both houses the prevailing distress continued and the revenue was steadily diminishing to provide revenue peel introduced an income tax of seven pence in the pound to stand for three years and to offset that again lowered the import duties on domestic animals dairy products other articles of food and some drugs when parliament assembled in eighteen forty three the discussions centered on free trade sir robert peel and mr gladstone and sir james graham admitted the general soundness of the principles of free trade but felt that the time had not yet come for their adoption fearing an increased distress among the agricultural population at that time and for a long period before the interests of agriculture were regarded as paramount and those of manufacturing secondary but as time passed it was generally felt that reduced taxes on all the necessities of life were imperative fifty years earlier england produced corn enough for all the wants of the country but with a population increasing at the rate of two hundred thousand a year it was obvious that the farmers could not supply the demand in consequence of which at then existing tariffs bread became yearly still dearer which bore hard on the manufacturing operatives the year eighteen forty four opened under happier auspices 
the financial measures of the government had answered public expectations and changed the growing deficiency into an increasing surplus improvements in machinery had increased the gains of the manufacturers a war in india had been terminated successfully and england was at peace with all the world the only formidable troubles were in ireland the standing difficulty with all administrations conservative or liberal and which no administration has ever been able to surmount sir robert peel had hoped that the catholic emancipation act would lead to the tranquillity of ireland but that act did not content the irish reformers the fiercest agitation was conducted by o'connell for the repeal of the union itself and the restoration of the irish parliament at bottom the demands of the great agitator were not unreasonable since he demanded equal political privileges for both ireland and england if the union should continue that in short there should be one law for both countries but since the ministry insisted on governing ireland as a foreign and conquered country denying equality of rights the agitation grew to fearful proportions chiefly in the shape of monster meetings at last the government determined on the prosecution of o'connell and some others for seditious conspiracy and went so far as to strike off the name of every catholic on the jury which was to try him the trial lasted twenty-four days and the prisoners were convicted the hard and unjust sentence on o'connell himself was imprisonment for twelve months and a fine of two thousand pounds against this decision an appeal was made to the house of lords and the judgment of the court was reversed but the old man had already been imprisoned several weeks his condemnation and imprisonment had told on his rugged constitution he was nearly seventy years of age and was worn out by excitement and unparalleled labors and although he tried to continue his patriotic work he soon after sickened and in eighteen forty seven died on his way to rome in search of rest o'connell's death did not end the agitations which have continued from that time to this with more or less asperity and probably will continue until justice shall be done to ireland it is plain that either ireland should be left free to legislate for herself which would virtually be the dismemberment of the empire or should receive equal privileges with the english or should be coerced with an iron hand which would depopulate the country it would seem that ireland if it is to form part of the empire not as a colony but an integral part like the different states of the american union should be governed by the same laws that england has and enjoy the same representation of its population probably there will never be order or tranquillity in the island until it shall receive that justice which the prejudices of the english will not permit them at present to grant so slow are all reforms which have to contend with bigotry ignorance and selfishness the chain which binds nations and communities together must be a chain of love without reference to differences in color religion or race in the session of eighteen forty four the factory question occupied a large share of public attention lord ashley whose philanthropic aims commanded great respect contended for a limitation of the hours of labor the ministry insisted upon twelve hours but lord ashley carried his measure with some amendments the government being brought over to the side of humanity the result was that the working hours of children under thirteen was limited to six and a half hours and the amount of fines imposed for a violation of the laws was lowered while a provision was made for the instruction of children employed in the mills of three hours in the summer and two and a half in the winter the confidence in the government showed itself in the rise of public securities so that it became practicable to reduce the interest on consoles the consolidated government debt from three and a half percent by which a saving accrued to the country of one million two hundred fifty thousand pounds indicating general prosperity the income increased with the revival of trade and commerce and the customs alone increased to nearly two million five hundred thousand pounds 
chiefly from duties on tea and sugar which increasing prosperity enabled the poorer classes to use more freely the surplus of the revenue amounted to over four million pounds sterling owing largely to the income tax which now the ministers proposed to reduce the charter of the bank of england was renewed in a form which modified the whole banking system in england the banking business of the bank was placed on the same footing with other institutions as to its power of issuing notes which beyond a certain amount should depend on the amount of bullion in the bank substantially this was the same principle which daniel webster advocated in the united states senate that all bank notes should be redeemable in gold and silver in other words that a specie basis is the only sound principle whether in banking operations or in government securities for the amount of notes issued this tended to great stability in the financial world as the bank of england although a private joint stock association has from its foundation in sixteen ninety four been practically the fiscal agent of the government having management of the public debt paying dividends upon it holding the government monies making advances when necessary helping the collection of the public revenue and being the central bank of the other banks in addition to the financial measures by which sir robert peel increased the revenues of the country and gave to it a greater degree of material prosperity than it had enjoyed during the century he attempted to soothe the catholics of ireland by increasing the grant to the roman catholic college of maynooth in ireland indeed he changed the annual grant to a permanent endowment but only through a fierce opposition he trebled the grant for national education and exhibited increasing liberality of mind as he gained experience but his greatest exploit was the repeal of the corn laws in a parliament where more than three-quarters of the members represented agricultural districts and were naturally on the side of a protection of their own interests in order to appreciate more clearly the magnitude of this movement we must trace it from the beginning the center of agitation for free trade especially in breadstuffs was manchester the second city of the kingdom for wealth population and influence taking in the surrounding towns a very uninteresting place to the tourist and traveller dingy smoky and rainy without imposing architecture or beautiful streets but a town of great intellectual activity in all matters pertaining to industrial enterprise and economical science the head centre of unpoetical materialism where most of the well-to-do people dined at one o'clock as soon as this town was permitted to send members to parliament it selected eminent free traders paulette thompson and mark phillips who distinguished themselves for the fearlessness of their speeches on an unpopular subject the agitation in parliament had begun in 1836 at a period of great depression in all kinds of businesses and consequent suffering among the poor but neither london nor the house of commons was so favorable to the agitation of the principles of free trade as manchester was and the subject began to be discussed throughout the country an unknown man by the name of Poulton was the first to gain attention by his popular harangues, and he was soon followed by Richard Cobden, a successful calico printer. An anti-corn law association was started by these pioneers, and £1,800 were raised by small subscriptions to enlighten the people on the principles of free trade, when protection was the settled policy of the government. The association was soon after reinforced by John Bright, an exceedingly brilliant popular orator, who was rich enough to devote a large part of his time to the spread of his opinions. Between him and Cobden, a friendship and cordial cooperation sprang up, which lasted to the death of the latter. They were convinced that the cause which they had so much at heart could be effectually advanced only by the widest dissemination of its principles by public meetings, by tracts, and by lectures it was their aim to change public opinion for all efforts would be in vain unless the people 
and especially their leaders, were enlightened on the principles they advocated. They had faith in the ultimate triumph of these principles because they believed them to be true. From simple faith in the power of truth, they headed the most tremendous agitation known in England since the passage of the Reform Bill. It was their mission to show conclusively to all intelligent people that it was for the interest of the country to abolish the Corn Laws, and that the manufacturing classes would be the most signally benefited. To effect this purpose, it was necessary to raise a large sum of money, and the friends and advocates of the movement most liberally subscribed to circulate the millions of tracts and newspapers which the association scattered into every hamlet and private family in England, besides the members personally giving their time and effort in public speeches and lectures in all parts of the country. It was felt that the battle of free trade must be fought first by the conversion of the individuals, then at the Hussings, and lastly in the House of Commons. The principle of protecting the country against the importation of foreign breadstuffs was upheld as fostering the agricultural interests, as inciting the larger cultivation of poor lands, as providing against dangerous dependence on foreign countries, and as helping the large landowners and their tenants to patronize manufacturers and trade. So that, although the high prices of breadstuffs were keeping vast numbers of people in misery and the country on the edge of revolution, the protectionist doctrine was believed in religiously by the laboring classes, the small shopkeepers, nearly all the educated classes, and a large majority of the members of Parliament. End of section 3